What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to spreading awareness about issues that usually get swept under the rug. I'm your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy, and this episode is brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. Did you know that about 40% of homeless youth identify as LGBTQ? Yeah, 40%. It puts them at risk for addiction, mental illness, and sexual assault. It's shocking that this many youth are at risk. But we don't read about it in the newspaper or see shows about it on TV. But we should, and we need to. LGBT youth need resources. They need support. And they need someone to talk about what's going on. And that's just what David Puma was doing. He is the writer of The House of Mayhem, a TV show in development that focuses on LGBT youth in the foster system. The series is based on a GLAAD-nominated play he wrote years ago. David's experience as a lawyer who has worked with homeless LGBT youth makes him the perfect person to undertake a project like this. He's working with director Henry Alberto and a very talented cast. David and his team have high hopes with this series, and it will get people talking about LGBT youth. I got the chance to speak with David about House of Mayhem and his experience. It was very enlightening and very inspiring and just hearing his passion behind this project and hearing all the good that he wants to do to help change the reality of the LGBT youth is is amazing. It really was so inspiring for me that I I feel I'm the biggest fan of wanting to get House of Mayhem series picked up and get it in development and I believe that people need to know about these issues. So I asked him about what was it like when he first wrote the play? I think that when we first did it, it was very ahead of its time. We were talking about a subject matter that no one knew anything about. No one was even talking about, for instance, LGBT kids committing suicide, the, the rate of kids who, who get harassed and bullied and end up taking their own lives. No one was talking about any of that. And now it's front page news. And the idea of, of kids who literally get thrown out of their home by their parents, by their step-parents, by their grandparents, and this is rampant. Thousands and thousands of kids end up on the street because they literally get thrown out of their homes. Uh, this was something no one really knew anything about except for a small amount of people who were doing the work. But now I'm starting to see news stories about it. And I think that we have finally gotten to the point where I, I call them sort of the last part of this population, you know, gay marriage, oh great, you know, gay marriage and, and, and gays in the military, you know, that, that, those are relatively easy hurdles. No one was talking about, you know, the kids who were really, really suffering. The, the kids who at the ages of 13, 14 years old were being thrown out by their parents and living on the streets. 
So uh, I think we're kind of ready for this now. House of Mayhem is a TV show that is pushing the envelope. It's the first show of its kind to bring the homelessness of the LGBTQ youth to the front stage. David explained the backstory to me. Uh, this Puerto Rican gay couple in New York sort of accidentally fall upon these kids and, you know, the circumstances are kind of crazy, but they end up one after another taking these kids in. They sort of discover this situation and sort of, without intending to, become foster parents to three of these kids who've been thrown out of their homes, two gay boys and one trans kid. So it's about this, you know, working class, working class. one of them is a photographer and one of them's a, a blue-collar worker, and, you know, they end up having a family that they never, ever intended to have. David explained that one major network made an offer for the show, but they wanted the cast much less diverse. They insisted on having white parents, but that wasn't something that they were willing to compromise on. David explained why maintaining the diversity was so important to him. I spent seven years as an attorney working with these kids, working with the foster care, you know, the people in the foster care system with the, you know, the families that they create on the street among themselves uh, with, uh, you know, the adults who care about them. And, you know, I don't want to whitewash this or, or tell a story that's, that's not the real story, first of all. And second of all, this is New York. I'm writing a story about New York. I'm not writing a story about, well, I mean, I'll say it. I'm not writing a story about L.A., uh, which is much more segregated. You know, I'm not going to put a show on TV, you know, or, you know, about a group of friends and every single one of them is white. This is just not something I'm interested in writing about. It's not the world that I live in. It's not the world that these kids live in. So many of the cultures, not only are, do they make the show more interesting, but it has a lot to do with the stories of the kids, you know, where they come from, you know, why their different cultures reject them for different reasons. You know, what are the reasons why it's hard to be gay if your parents are, are from Pakistan? Why is it difficult to be trans? As when you are, are you know, an African-American family in the Bronx, where the rejection comes from, the, how the church, how different religions influence, you know, the experiences they've gone through, how they've been thrown out of their homes, driven out of their neighborhoods. Um, these things are all a part of the story. Then the kids are sort of a composite of so many of the kids that I worked with. And I worked with thousands of kids over the years. And all of their stories and all of the pieces of their stories, uh, you know, all of the things that actually happened to them. I mean, I don't, I don't model any one kid on any one kid that I knew, of course, but every single detail is taken from a detail of a, of a real kid that I worked with, including, you know, uh, kids who, you know, faced such abuse in the foster care system that they ran away over and over and over again. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the experiences of the kids you worked with? One trans kid I worked with was in as many as 24 foster homes over a period of a couple of years that I was working with her. Kids whose uh, you know mother had a partner or a lover who rejected the kid and the mother chose the partner or lover over the kid. And so the kid, you know, felt so uncomfortable in his own home that he ran away. Kids who ended up, you know, sleeping on the street or in squats, buildings that were being torn down. And uh, kids would, would just go into these buildings at night when no one was looking and they would, you know, set up little spaces in these buildings where they would sleep at night so they'd be warm. Uh, you know, the details of all of the kids' stories come from real people. 
There are so many stories of kids who got kicked out of their homes because of their sexuality or gender. To me, that sounds insane. I mean, when I tell my friends and family that, they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, people actually kick their kids out because of their sexuality. I can't imagine ever, ever wanting to see my child in any type of harm because of their sexuality and actually push them out the door before they're ready to. And I think that if you look up the stats on it, you will be really amazed. But I think what's really important is to hear it straight from the mouths of people that have been kicked out. Volcative, a medium and technology venture, they share stories from all walks of life. And they spoke to some youth who had been homeless. And here are a couple of these stories. I do come from a very affluent background and I would have never expected I would be homeless. I would have never expected things to turn out the way they did. For my family, they're very big on, you know, God doesn't make any mistakes and um, you should be happy in your own body. So when I told them that I wanted to transition and start testosterone and start changing my body uh, medically, they weren't okay with it, so they kicked me out. I had came out when I was 16 to my dad, who is a preacher, and he just basically told me that I could not stay there. You're in a unique position. One, you're a trained lawyer. Mm-hmm. Two, you, you are gay yourself. Three, mm-hmm. you're a writer. You've experienced New York. You've experienced L.A. And so you're trying to really, uh, like, is one of your goals trying to create awareness and also trying to help people come to better solutions and what to do with these issues? Well, absolutely. I think people are ready for this issue. I think people will understand it. You know, I think we've gotten to the point where people for the first time over the last few years are really talking about LGBT kids and teenagers and and understanding what they go through in schools and in their neighborhoods and with their families and the rejection that they face and and how that affects them uh, mentally and physically and emotionally. And, you know, the next step is to understand these kids and their stories. You know, that we have, uh, you know, a situation where kids are doing so poorly in their own homes and their own neighborhoods that they run away or very frequently get thrown out, that the foster care system where they end up is no better because, you know, as I like to say about the foster care system, so many of the people who work in it aren't paid enough to give a shit. And there's just uh, sort of a lack of training. It hasn't been until recently that transgender people have been talked about by the media. Now people are starting to realize how many trans teens there are out in the world. I asked David, what are some of the challenges faced by trans kids? They're the first ones to run away or be thrown out. You know, even before they were fully experiencing themselves as trans or fully representing themselves, just, just you know, the kids you see on the streets, the kids you see getting beaten up, the kids you see truant, not going to school because it's, it's just a horrible experience for them, are the ones who are the most gender non-conforming. The ones who couldn't hide it if they wanted to. Well, and I'm sure it must be, you know, very scary if you're in a family that's so traditional and not accepting of it. I hear stories all the time about, you know, fathers chasing their kids out to the middle of the street and beating them up. And, yeah. Families are a big part of the problem. And uh, and I don't shy away from talking about the fact that the church is a huge part of the problem. A huge part. There's not one kid I worked with who doesn't, you couldn't, like, to bring their parents' reaction to who they are down to their religion. I mean, it's always a factor in their lives. 
unfortunately. And like anything else, it's really about exposure. I mean, I didn't really understand. I, I didn't really get it until I started working with kids because, you know, hearing their stories and listening to their experiences, you know, understanding that, you know. I mean, one, one girl told me, you know, when I was a little boy, I thought that when you get to a certain age, you get to pick whether you're going to be a boy or a girl. And I always knew I was going to pick being a girl. Being trans isn't easy in today's world. People aren't always accepting or understanding, and I think it's getting better because there's more role models and there's more of it in TV and in movies. But I think there's a big lack of understanding. The biggest thing that we can do right now is kind of build the awareness and be able to explain to people what even trans means. And TEDx is a great vehicle to do that. And in TEDx, the Mid-Atlantic Talk, Daniela Carter told her story of what it's like growing up as a trans youth. Physical violence, stabbing, homelessness followed. He became one more nameless throwaway, one more statistic to add to the growing 2.5 million homeless LGBTQ youth in America. Sexual orientation and gender identity have nothing to do with each other. You know, so a kid, you know, way before they experience anything sexual or have, or even know what sex is, can know that whether they're a boy or a girl. And so many of the trans people that I worked with, you know, they tell, they all say this that they they knew when they were very, very, very young that they were in the wrong body, that there were things on their body that they didn't understand, that they didn't relate to, that they have no connection to. Yeah, I agree. A friend of mine, um, they're daughter transitioned into a son and and it happened quite young he was probably 12 and now he doesn't uh-huh. discuss it they don't he doesn't even um consider himself a, a trans like he he just goes on with his life and it's kind of a non-conversation because for right. him that's been his whole life and i was surprised how much the community embraced that i mean really uh, it was such a waspy community and everybody was super cool about it <laughs> And then, you know, it has a lot to do with, you know, people, people's willingness to just be educated. And, that, and you know, I, I also think that sometimes, you know, in a, in a community like that or a culture like that, pe- people at least aren't going to, <laughs> people at least aren't going to chase you down the street and beat you up. But, you know, who knows what they really think. But they're at least going to get that, you know, we're not going to treat this person violently. We still have, you know, wealthy, educated, you know, Republicans passing laws. Uh, you know, like the laws our Congress is going to start passing, you know, after January, uh, making all kinds of discrimination against LGBT people, you know, federally uh, okay. Uh, so there's plenty of ignorance. I could spend hours just talking about the LGBT reasons why every person, you know, Trump has appointed to his cabinet is is just shockingly out of sync with reality, you know, let alone all of the other ways that these people are are, you know, hell-bent on dragging us back. Not even back. It's, it's worse than dragging us back. You know, it's now we see what he's doing. He's draining the swamp and he's bringing in nothing but billionaires. White, male, billionaires. I think the new government has the LGBTQ community concerned, and rightly so. And so I feel a lot of empathy for David, and I feel like it's even more important right now for this show to get onto the air and for people to keep moving forward and to not let ignorance get in the way of telling stories that need to be told. And 
So one of the things I also asked David is what are the big themes he wants to run through the storylines? What are the big takeaways he wants the audience to have or, or learnings? How do we think the show can educate people on what street teens in the LGBT world face? So we're going to explore, you know, the different ways that, uh, you know, family structures, uh, religious beliefs, absolutely, on other factors, uh, you know, contribute to the rejection that the kids go through. So we're going to use, you know, we're going to basically try to, you know, create characters that take us into the world of the, of the homes, of the neighborhoods, of the schools, of the different ethnicities. You know, we're going to talk about, you know, what happens to these kids in, in, in school. So many of them end up truant. Uh, as I mentioned before, they, you know, they're, they're just picked on over and over again in school. We're going to explore the foster care system. And, and that's, you know, in itself, you know, just such a huge topic, you know, what these kids go through. And, and it's not all horrible. You know, part of it is that there are good people in all of these places. There are people who are trying to do good things in the schools. There are people who are trying to do good things, you know, adults trying to, trying to do good things in the foster care system. But they just come up against so much, not only resistance, but they are so limited in their resources. And I want to show some of those places that no one knows exist, like, you know, the Hedrick Martin Institute, which is a drop-in center for LGBT kids in the village, and places like Streetwork Project and Safe Space, which are, you know, we'll have our fictionalized versions of these places, which are places where runaways go, day centers where runaways stop and meet and get together, and they have caseworkers who work there, people trying to place them, people who, you know, try to reconnect them with their families when they can. And so we'll, we'll be introduced to, you know, all of the issues that those kids face. You know, I was doing this work as an attorney some 10 years ago. But I've stayed in touch with a lot of the kids, and I've stayed in touch with a lot of the issues, and some of those things have evolved. So, you know, I very much want the the kids who are around today to sort of be involved in this. You know, we want to stay in touch with the groups like Fierce, which is a queer youth activist group in New York City. Uh, you know, we want we want to stay in touch with those kids and find out what are the issues, you know, today, and how are they different, and use that as the inspiration to, you know, build the new characters and build the, you know, the storylines. And what, what do you need to get this project off the ground? Like, what, what can people do to help you to further your dream of getting this out there? Well, right now we're, uh, you know, we're trying to raise money, of course, to get the pilot shot. And we've been, you know, we've been doing uh, pretty well with that. We're going through a group called Fractured Atlas. And uh, we've been, you know, we've raised some money and we need to raise more. Uh, of course, we've got a, we've got a terrific cast lined up, um, and we've been able to shoot some promotional materials. We've had a few meetings. Uh, you know, uh, the, the director and the and the producer know more about that than me, and and I'm not sure how much I you know can be can, can talk about those. But uh, you know, we just need uh, you know what everyone needs, which is you know financial assistance moving forward. So they can go to the fractured our fractured atlas website. Thanks, David, for that. So for anyone interested, please go visit Fractured Atlas and look for House of Mayhem because they're looking for any support they can get or even just go to their Facebook page or even write to Netflix or write to anyone saying we need this show on TV. Can you tell us about some of the characters on the show? As you know, looking at Facebook and website, you have a lot of different, interesting, unique characters, which I think is what's going to make this show so authentic and, and unique and, 
and definitely one of a kind. The Charlotte, who Ginger Minj plays, is sort of the Vera Charles character. Does not want her best friend to be stolen by these kids. Okay, I you see. Know, these kids are sort of intruding on, on Charlotte's life. Of course, you know, uh, eventually somewhere down the road, you know, she develops a soft spot for one of them and blah, 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 blah. Quay has had a lot of experiences. I mean, was recently on uh, America's Next Top Model. My impression of Quay is that Quay is, of the three kids, first of all, we can just because of the fact that she's trans, she's had the most personal experience. I mean, she lived on the street for a while and was in the foster care system for a while and is now like an up-and-coming star. So, she, you know, she's a killer. She's a hardworking young, young lady and uh, probably has a lot to say. Stand Up, Speak Up is brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. You can raise awareness about homeless LGBTQ youth by wearing one of our inspiring designs. Check out our Teens at Risk collection at wearable-therapy-toki.com and start the conversation about social issues like addiction, homelessness, and abuse. Wearable Therapy by Toki. I wanted to hear from a teen who had experienced some of the things an LGBTQ youth might experience. So I spoke with Quay Tan, one of the characters in the House of Mayhem. Quay is a transgender teen who already has a promising career in television. She actually was in America's Next Top Model as one of the first American trans to go into that competition. But like many trans teens, life hasn't been easy for her. And so she started to speak about her start on America's Next Top Model and what what that meant to her, her family, and to the trans community in general. I've been... I guess like a medical transition is meaning me taking hormones since I was 13. And before that, I've just been, you know, extremely feminine with long hair forever. I filmed America's Next Top Model. And then I was like really devastated because I didn't uh, stay on the show long. And then I was like, I'm going to make them wish that they picked me. And I was like, I was telling like my friends because we're all actors and we all get together and we all work really hard. And I was like, I'm going to audition and I'm going to get something else and I'm going to get something else. And then I got this show and it wasn't even like three weeks. And I was on another set. I was surrounded once again by people that I've always looked up to. Carmen Carrera and Ginger Minge are both on the show. And they're, um, Ginger Minge was on, is on RuPaul's Drag Race. And Carmen Carrera is an elite model. She's done a movie with Meryl Streep. And it's just, oh, it's just such an amazing cast. And I was just like so amazed to be around you know, these amazing, you know, artists that I like, I've looked up to for a very long time. I can only imagine how difficult it must be to put yourself out there on America's Next Top Model, the way that Quay did. So I watched her on the show and I asked her, what was it like? Here's a clip from the show. You haven't been praised for your past achievements growing up. Is this a lack of support that you've had as a kid? Yeah, I'm a trans woman. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things, even though I'm different, even though I'm, you know, trans and maybe not everyone understands that, there's still a place for me in what I want to do. Being on America's Next Top Model was, um, it was interesting because you're not just judged off of 
your modeling ability. And you're not just judged off of how well you speak or interact with other people. You're judged off of everything. So it was interesting to be judged off of somebody else's idea of me, even though they consider themselves to be professionals of finding out, you know, who someone is. It was very formulaic. America's Next Top Model doesn't often have transgender models. I was curious how many other trans women have been on the show, how many have responded to it. You know, how common is trans models becoming right now? So on this show, there's been, on America's Next Top Model, there's been three other trans women on this show. One was kicked off very early because she was trans and they got a lot of pushback from that. And then after that, they did, did ISIS. And then when ISIS was on, they were calling her a man and they were calling her a drag queen. And then after that, there was another trans woman on there who did not make it, um, who was not, she did not stay on there long. Some guy said, cause they, she, she, this guy kissed her and he said, I felt like I was kissing a guy. And I'm someone who I've dealt with I, I don't let anyone walk over me and um, coming into this show and knowing their history, my intent was to not let anyone walk over me and to not let anyone, you know, treat me in a way that I didn't think was acceptable. So what happened while you were on the show? I mean, how did you handle being a trans woman when there was so much criticism and backlash against the trans community? It must have been difficult for you and... And it's sometimes awkward. So I'm already coming into this very defensive. And then they're asking us to be, they're asking us to comment on other girls. So they're asking us to talk about other girls. They're asking us to say, who do you think deserves to go home? Who do you think deserves to go home? And you have to answer the question. And then so from there, conflict comes out. But there were so many other things that I did on that show. I talked about, actually, I talked about being homeless because when I was 16 and uh, from the age of, I think, from like 16 to 18, I was, um, I was homeless. I was living in my car. I was living in a homeless shelter. And I've worked myself from the ground up. And I've taught, and I talked about these things on that show, and it was really, uh, it, it it was really disappointing to see that they only showed uh, the cattiness. They only showed one side of me, and they tried to simplify me in a way. But what's so, but what's so great, the silver lining of it all is, is that. People who, do, who saw America's Next Top Model, they'll never know how open and how much I talked about, you know, how I survived being homeless and how I used to not have enough money to eat anything. I used to have a gym membership and I would just, I would just shower in gyms and then go live in my car and then go to work. You know, I didn't uh, sit around all day. I've, I was always, you know, working. Do you think that America's Next Top Model is ready for someone that's trans to be a winner? Do you think that the America's ready for that? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think America's ready. I don't know if the show's ready. 
But I think um, I think America's ready. I think today and the conversations we have around trans people, you know, even though some of the conversation we're having, you know, could use a little work, but we're still having conversations about trans people and it's out there. I think that there could definitely be a winner, a trans winner of America's Next Top Model. I just think that the people who run the show um, behind the scenes need to you know, kind of get their politics together. Quay brought up a good point about people talking about trans life. I came across one example on BuzzFeed, and it's a video of a teen talking about what's it like to be trans. And it has over 800,000 views. And I was like, Mom, I know you think I'm gay, but I'm not. She didn't, like, fully understand. And then she did her own research on it. Um, She became more accepting of it. It was better for me because it made my life easier and happier as a person to know that my mom was okay with it because my mom means like everything to me. I was physically and verbally assaulted. I just had people like scream awful things at me while I was walking through the hallway. But I think once I was in seventh grade, it honestly wasn't as bad. It's just, you know, sixth grade is just such a hard year anyway for everyone. And especially when you're trans and you're trying to deal with all of these things and trying to deal with just junior high school in general, it is so stressful. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes organizations and groups that we're passionate about and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. Listening to their stories, I wanted to hear more about what things were like when Quay was a child. Just always been very um, feminine, and I've just always been a girl, but my doctor uh, classified me as male and my family expected me to be male. They were all policing my gender. They were all telling me how I should walk, how I should talk, how I should be um, as in regards to my gender. You know, they were saying, I'm not walking masculine enough. I'm not talking masculine enough. I'm not 
giving them a masculine aura or a masculine feel. So there was just a lot of, and what, what, what that's called is just policing my gender. You know, every little thing was policed and it wasn't necessarily about behavior as in, you know, be good in school or things like that, that those weren't the things that my family was concerned with with me like oh make sure you read and or make sure you do your homework their main concern was your voice is feminine you walk a certain way that's feminine and this is wrong 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 so around this time I was watching a lot of tv a lot of talk shows a lot of different motivational speakings and what they were talking about, they were encouraging people to be themselves. They were like, whatever you do, just be yourself. And they were saying, if you're curvy, just be yourself and be curvy. If you're quirky, just be yourself and be quirky because there's beauty within that. And I said to myself, I said, why can't I just be proud of who I am? Why can't I just embrace who I am? And at some point in my life, I realized that I was going to be the person who took care of me. I was going to be the person who called the shots on my life. And when I grow up, I'm going to have to be able to live with the person that I am. Because even though I was living with my parent, either parent at the time, I knew that at some point I was just going to have to be who I was and I was going to have to have some type of self-identity besides the identity of what other people were telling me who I was or who I should be. So I think at that moment or at that kind of around that time and I was listening to a lot of those like be yourself motivational kind of things, that's when I started to really say, okay, I'm going to craft my own identity or not even craft my own identity. I'm going to just look at the things that are naturally, that are naturally coming to me. I'm going to look at my personality. I'm going to look at the things that I like and the things that I don't like. And I'm going to recognize what my identity is. And I'm going to separate from what people who, what people tell me, what my family tells me who I am. And I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to understand and I'm going to stick to my identity even if I had to maybe sometimes, you know, go along to get along, you know, maybe there were some times where I had to, you know, that doesn't mean that I spoke up or or articulated this to my family, but as long as I knew myself who I was, then it helped me get through that really difficult time that really tumultuous time, which was my childhood. Where was your dad in all this? I uh, went back and forth between living with my mother and my father. My father did a lot of policing of my gender and he had expectations of who he thought I was. So he wanted me to be very masculine. He wanted me to be this idea of of who he thought I was. And I just wasn't living up to his expectations as far as how masculine I am. I was a pretty good kid until, you know, the abuse and things just got a little too out of hand. So it really wasn't 
my behavior in school or anything. It was more, you know, just policing my gender. And so, um, yeah, there was just, there, there was me and my father. Um, well, my father just, he just saw, he wanted a, he wanted me to be this idea that he had in his head. And that was just really unfair. He didn't want me to be a person. He didn't want me to have my own goals in life. He didn't want me to have my own interests. He didn't want me to have my own happiness. He just wanted me to be his idea. He wanted me to live up to that. And even if I was some masculine, you know, lumberjack, football player, basketball player, I would have never lived up to his expectations because there was just a lot more going on with him before I even came into the picture, before I was even born. He was dealing with a lot. And I think he just kind of wanted someone he could live through vicariously. And if there's anything that my father taught me, it's to live through myself, my father, Um, always wanted to be a basketball player, always wanted to do bigger things that he never did. And he's a very handsome man. He's a very charming man, but he never applied himself. He, He never used, you know, any of his natural talents to do something bigger. And he kind of wanted me to me to he wanted to live through me vicariously. So like like I said, sorry to be so redundant and repetitive, but my my father was just a living example of what it's like when someone doesn't go after their dreams. That's what I think about when I think of my father and how ugh, terrible that turned out for him. So I was being abused. So I was trying to survive and my father wanted me to speak, you know, in a deep voice. And, uh, you know, and I was, I was just always feminine. So I've just, I've just always looked like a girl. So what I did to try to survive was I tried to pass as a boy and I was unsuccessful and I would, you know, cut my hair and I would cry and I would tell my dad that I was trying to, you know, comply to his, you know, his wishes, but it just wasn't who I was. That would be a lot for anybody to handle, but that would be huge, huge stress for a young child that's just trying to figure out life in general. So you've had to kind of um, protect yourself from your abusers, try to be comfortable with who you are, but only be who you are in certain audiences. Yeah, I tried to be different around my father, but I was very unsuccessful at it. Like he would just get really upset and then punch me like when I would like, you know, try to make my voice deep. Like it was just very bad acting. <laughs> I wasn't fooling anyone. It was certainly very stressful, but it was more of the, you know, the, the abusive situation. And then, of course, everyone telling me that who I am is wrong, you know, was very it was very weird. So do you still talk to your your dad and your sisters or what is that relationship like? I don't talk to my dad. I haven't spoken to my dad since I was 13. I do speak to my sisters. We don't speak uh, regularly, but we're friends on social media. And I saw them not this Christmas, but the Christmas before. And um, it's, I mean, we don't have the closest relationship. Talking about Quay's family and her lack of support made me wonder how she got to start on hormones at such a young age. Did she have her mother's support? How did she get her hands on hormones? How did she pay for it? 
I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges trans people have is how do they repress puberty? You know, because it's better to get on a program when you're young before you develop too much. So I bought it online illegally, black market, but that's, it's, it's, you know, it's very dangerous. This is why people should have open conversations with their children about what's going about either about their sexuality or about their gender. People should have these kind of conversations because then you're going to have children who are going to go do something unsafe like I did. I bought hormones off of a black market online from the UK and they weren't, it's not a pill that, I mean, I did buy pills, but that was that those were to block my testosterone, but my estrogen that I bought were injectables things that I was injecting into my body, not knowing what it was. I mean, thinking I knew what it was, but it could have been anything. Like I could have, you know, I could have been doing anything. The needles, the needles could have been dirty. I was 13 years old. You know, this is why it's very important that parents have conversations with their children about this so they don't go doing dangerous things um, with themselves. And this is why I love House of Mayhem because you have these children who are trying to survive in very similar ways that I've tried to survive. And you see what happens if you leave them to their own devices. You see what happens if you don't have these very crucial conversations. And that's why I really, really was attracted to this show from the from the gate. It sounded like a tough time for Quay, so I asked her if she had any vices. She explained that while she was homeless, she saw the negative effects of drugs and alcohol on people. So she told me about her only vice was acting. What I did really to um, to to sort of my outlet was always acting because I just love to be in a space where it's okay to cry because I find a lot of times I'm trying to be strong and I'm not passive and I'm not going to let anyone walk over me. And I'm, I'm a strong woman. You know, what I love about acting is that I can let all of that go and I can be weak and I can be vulnerable and I can be strong and I can be, you know, angry and I can be all of those things. I can be in love, but that's it's one thing I really love about acting is that I can be in love. I can experience things in acting that I don't get to experience in my life. So yeah, that's, that's always been my outlet. When Quay referred to her time on the street, I couldn't help but wonder how she overcame that. How does a young teen go from living on the streets to having a successful acting career? I was living in my car and a homeless woman came up to me and she was like, oh my God, you're so young. How old are you? And I was like, I'm 16. And she was like, you're 16. She goes, there are so many places where you can stay. And she was like, go here, go there. And she was such a, such an angel. And so I went to my friend's place and they are a drop-in uh, shelter for, uh, for homeless youth. And you go in there And they'll give you something to eat, you know, a bite to eat, you know, maybe like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or some soup. You know, it's it's like a soup kitchen for kids. And then they referred me to places where I could stay. And I ended up staying at the LGBT Center of Los Angeles. And um, I stayed there and I I lived there with a bunch of different um, LGBT people. And it was amazing. A lot of LGBT people who are in my circumstance. 
when I was living at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, which is a homeless shelter, they call it transitional living because uh, you you know you're transitioning out of being homeless to being you know living on your own and supporting yourself financially. When I was there, I found out that half of the homeless kids, half of the half of the youth in America that are living on the streets are queer or LGBTQ. But if you um, look at how many queer people there are in America or in the world, there's only 10% of our population is queer. So those percentages are just mind-boggling when you look at them. How can we have so few queer people, but so many more queer people who are youth who are homeless? So obviously shows like House of Mayhem, they really enlightened people when it comes to this topic. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that, you know, I was actually walking with my mother. I was driving in the car with my mother one time and she was talking about some home, some homeless kid on the street and she was saying, oh, that kid's probably homeless because he doesn't want to, you know, listen to his parents or whatnot. But when you really start to look at, you know, the statistics and even even other people that I've, I've seen and come across, they say, oh, this, this, that kids homeless because into drugs and into this and into that and you know they choose they choose to be that way it's not that simple it's really not that cut and dry not when you really start to do your research instead of making assumptions you really see that a lot of these kids are being thrown out of their homes because they're queer because they're gay trans what have you and they don't have any place to go. So they go to the streets and they do what they have to do to survive. And it's not something that's just happening now in my generation. It's been happening forever. It's been happening for as long as there's been cameras, as long as there's been books being written, as long as there's been people that have been different. There's been kids who've had to make it on their own because unfortunately, the people who should look out for them don't. So the great thing about House of Mayhem, this TV show that Henry and um, David Pomo are making is that it touches on these topics. It, it talks about, you know, the drastically high rates of queer people living on the streets and queer suicides. It talks about things that really aren't talked about within queer media. You know, we are just starting to have really nice conversations about trans people in media. And I mean, we're just scratching the surface with conversations with gay people on TV. I mean, are there gay characters on TV? Yes. But we're not talking a lot about the things that really affect our community, like homelessness and, you know, legislation that affects us and impinges on our freedoms. We're just talking about very kind of surface things. That's just what I see when I look at TV. It's my opinion, you know. But I think projects like this, media like this really helps because it's just another layer. It's just a, it's a clearer picture 
of what's really going on and it brings attention to it. And when you can bring attention to a thing, you can really affect change. There was a lot of waiting lists. I was very lucky to get in. I was very lucky that they saw something in me and they said, you know, this is a young girl who, if given the opportunity, can really turn her life around. And they gave me that opportunity. And it's not often that, you know, young people are able to pull themselves up out of that situation of being homeless. So you've gone through quite a journey, a lot of different different obstacles you've had to overcome. And you go through America's Next Top Model, which is huge. I mean, that's like massive. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you get approached to play a role. Um, Well, what what age would you play? Tell us a little about your character on the show. Yeah, so Epiphany is a 16-year-old girl. She is actually uh, inspired by, Epiphany is inspired by a close friend of David. And so this young girl that David knew, there was a young girl in New York who was in the foster care system. And she wasn't uh, allowed, the foster care system and and the um, administration of children's services did not allow her to um, wear her clothes, which were girl clothes. And so she was, she is a survivor. And she went from, she went, David said that she was in 20 different placements, you know, singular placements to group homes. And she was just bounced around from home to home to home to home to home, all the while while people were harassing her, while people were intimidating her, and while the um, the adults, the people that were her guardians at the time, were telling her that she couldn't uh, that that she couldn't dress like a girl, dress the way that she is, and so David actually ended up doing a David and the uh, young lady that Epiphany is based off of. They ended up suing the um, administration of children's services, and they won. So um, it's just it's 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 so. It, it, it's so copacetic. It's so beautiful to have to to be have the privilege to play a, a really strong character that I relate a lot to. We have um, a few shared experiences, but just to know that this character is based off of a real life person who has survived and who has stood up for trans children's rights. I mean, it it just, I just feel really privileged and I feel really grateful. And what does she do now? Is she just in there advocating and just keep pushing through to? Yeah, she's, she's amazing. She's in college right now and she's just, she's an academic and she's just doing her thing. She's living her life and she made it through and she survived. And it's honestly, it's, it's really rare that trans and queer kids, all LGBTQ kids make it out of that situation. You know, two out of three teen suicides are, are they're, they're queer, are, are, are queer kids. And just to, you know, and it's just, it's really imbalanced when you think of queer people only make up 10% of the population, but they make up half of the homeless population and they make up two thirds of the teen suicide. 
I'm your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy, and this has been Stand Up, Speak Up, brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki, an advocacy wear clothing company dedicated to spreading awareness about social issues. Check out our Zero Discrimination Collection to help you speak up about LGBTQ equality. Thanks for listening to the whole song. I got some bonus content for you. I was interviewing Krista for another podcast, and I thought she had a lot of insight into this current topic of LGBT street youth. Let's hear what she has to say. In regard to the LGBTQ population, we could read a ton of studies and statistics that show kids from these populations are disproportionately homeless oftentimes kicked out of their houses, oftentimes for religious reasons. So, you know, a couple of things going on here. From a theological perspective, this idea of human dignity, for me at least, is, is key. This idea that all people are created in God's image. So whatever that looks like, whatever you look like, you're still created in God's image. Uh, and so you deserve to be respected and protected and so forth. So any any idea of religious prejudice or persecution to LGBT communities is just, uh, it, it's absurd, in my opinion. Even from a theological perspective, it just doesn't make any sense to me. To build on that, you know, there are definitely social services, homeless shelters, and, and things like that, who do very good jobs of reaching out to these communities and assisting them as best they can. 
But there's also social services, again, unfortunately, particularly ones that are, are more religious-focused or affiliated, that don't do a good enough job of helping kids in need. Um, and they just, you know, anyone who turns their back on a child, regardless of his or her sexual orientation, that's kind of vile, I think, um, and, and definitely unchristian. It really hurts my soul, I guess, uh, if I could be very personal about this. Um, I just can't imagine what these kids go through being ostracized from their families and then again being ostracized by, by social services, just how lonely that, that must be. So as far as what we need to fix it, I mean, I, I think, again, in the United States at least, I think there's a move, I think there's a more uh, a growing social acceptance of the LGBTQ community. I think, it, I hope at least that will continue to grow. I think the Supreme Court decision a couple of years ago uh, to continue to, to legalize same-sex marriage was a good step in that direction. But beyond that, I would I would hope that people just really think about people as people, as human beings, that regardless of orientation are still fundamentally human beings and deserve everything that would come with that. You can win a free t-shirt just for leaving a comment on this episode of Stand Up Speak Up during the month of February 2017. Congratulations to January's winner, Tori Gallagher. Be sure to leave a comment on this episode of Stand Up Speak Up and you'll automatically be entered to win. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.